0: Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fan Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fan Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And uh, we are coming in the midst of the Suns' nine-game win streak in the playoffs, coming to an end uh, on Thursday night. Um, in game three, it was really just not a great game for the Suns all around, obviously. Um, you know, Chris Paul made his return, and coming off of that emotional win in game two, the value, all of that. Uh, I really do think that kind of played into game three. Um, it was hard to come off of an emotional high like that, especially with this series shifting to L.A. Um, and I think the Suns got a little complacent, which we don't often see from them. They just got outplayed. They got outworked. Uh, the Clippers wanted it more. They played better. And their defense really did a number on on Chris Paul and Devin Booker. So a lot of things to take from this game. But we are going to talk – first and foremost, about the reasons that we shouldn't be panicking right now. Obviously, the Clippers have made it a series again by winning, making it a 2-1 series. They did what they're supposed to do and protected home court. The Suns still have the chance to steal game four on the road, which would then give them the opportunity to close out in five at home, which is the whole point. So they still have their, their chance here. Um, There are reasons that Suns fans should not be panicking just because they lost this game and and quite handily at that. We're going to talk a little bit about the Devin Booker on Patrick Beverly matchup because obviously that was something that stood out in game three and it stood out in game two as well, but kind of got overshadowed by all the craziness of that final minute there. Um, We're going to talk about a couple of adjustments that the Suns can make, uh, what to make of the campaign injury, and why the Suns missed him in particular Um, touch a little bit on the three-point shooting and then for this week's g-rated segment we're going to be talking about season four of the handmaid's tale uh, which just wrapped up I think last week on Hulu Um, really good really dark show so it kind of fits in with the theme of today um, after such a uh, disappointing game three loss but Keeping it optimistic, let's dive right into the reasons, basic reasons that the Suns should still be optimistic in this series, aside from the fact that they are still up 2-1. Um, in game three, we can't get around this. Obviously, Booker and Chris Paul were not good, but it's not going to be very often where Chris Paul and Devin Booker combine for 30 points on 10 of 40 shooting from the field. Um, they were only three for 14 from three. They were both a minus 15. Um that's the exception. That's not the rule. Like obviously the Clippers did a fantastic job defensively. There was not a lot of space for the Suns to be found uh, Thursday night, but you know, it, it just, it was one of those games where it felt like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, you know, Mikhail Bridges was getting scored on quite a bit more than we're used to seeing from him. He had a good offensive game, decent. He was, I think he had 13 points on five of eight shooting, but it seemed like he got beat pretty often and by Reggie Jackson in particular. Now, Reggie Jackson's been great in these playoffs for the Clippers. So I, I, it is what it is. It's very surprising to me as well. But Reggie Jackson's been great. Mikhail Bridges shouldn't be getting torn up by Reggie Jackson. I'm sorry. He just shouldn't be. And it happened quite a bit more than we're used to seeing. Same deal with Terrence Mann. I think he scored eight points in that pivotal 21-3 to run that the Clippers put together in the third quarter. And quite a few of them came on bridges. So it was a very – it wasn't a great performance from him or from the Suns' defense in general. Um, Then you want to talk about DeAndre Ayton. He kind of got outplayed by Ivica Zubots. I think Zubots had 15 and 16 or 16 and 15, one of those two. Um, But he had a really good game. And Ayton started off strong um, but kind of faded as the game went on. And we'll talk a little bit about that because it's not – it's not a case of, I'm already rolling my eyes, but it's not a case of, we need to feed the big man, like give the big man more, like, no, it's not. That's not what it was. Ayton did a tremendous job propping up the Suns offense early on, but this offense does not run through Ayton. Aiton's max value to this offense is cleaning up around the rim, you know, setting good screens, rolling hard, finishing those alley-oops, finishing those dunks and those good looks around the basket. It's not getting him touches and giving him post-ups where the offense goes stagnant because the beauty of Aiton's value on the offensive end is when he is setting those screens, when he is rolling hard, he draws a crowd, he draws help defense, and that is what opens up the Suns' three-point shooters. Have they shot the ball well? No, but that's another issue that's not Aiton being improperly used. Um, And we've talked about this multiple times in the past of how to maximize Aiton and how his gravity has such a a significant positive impact on the Suns' offense. So it's really disappointing to see like, oh, he only attempted so many shots after the first quarter. That's not how you measure DeAndre Ayton's value to the offense and whether the Suns are maximizing him properly. And I really do think he got tired a little bit. We saw he got outworked a couple of times by Zubac. There was that one, the Suns had cut it to six in the fourth quarter Um, and then Reggie Jackson got that layup, and then uh, after Beverly blocked Booker, the Clippers had a break going, and, and the Suns' defense was a little bit out of sorts. Reggie Jackson was trailing the play, got a wide open look at a three, and that was Aiton's guy based on how they were matched up there. They either needed to switch and communicate that with Aiton dropping low, or he needed to be a lot closer to Jackson, who was already having a good game and who has shot the ball very well throughout this postseason. So that was a bad Example of, of not knowing your personnel, KYP. Um, but again, that's another thing that went wrong. DeAndre Aiden got outplayed by Eva Kazubots, and that's not, I wouldn't expect that to continue <laughs> through the rest of the series. Um, and then we can't ignore that Campaign got hurt in the first quarter. He rolled his ankle uh, on a loose ball there and uh, he didn't play the rest of the game. He was ruled out officially uh, just after halftime, I believe. So that's not a good sign that he was ruled out for the rest of the night. Hopefully it's something that he can play on Saturday for game four. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about what he brings to the table for the Suns in this matchup in particular. Um, But despite all those things going wrong, the Suns still managed to cut it to six points late in the fourth quarter after they got down by, I think, as many as 18 or something like that. Um, They put together like a 12-0 run at that point and cut it down to six you know, the Clippers fire right back with a 5-0 run, all Reggie Jackson. But despite the struggles of Devin Booker and Chris Paul, despite Aiton getting outplayed by Zubots, despite Mikhail Bridges getting scored on a lot more than we're used to, they were still in that game near the end of the game. Uh, on the road, coming off an emotional game with Chris Paul trying to shake off rust. Like, you'll take that. It's not... It's not good to open the door for the Clippers. Obviously, they wanted to win this game, and they didn't come out with the right level of focus and, and uh, intensity to match what the Clippers were bringing to the table. But it's not the end of the world. It's not something worth panicking about. I have a hard time seeing that scenario playing out three more times in a series for the Clippers to win this. So they're going to have to be even better if they want to take this from the Suns And we've seen the Suns adjust all season long, like Monty, Chris Paul, Devin Booker. They are masters of watching the film, breaking things down and adjusting based on their opponent and figuring out ways that they can get Booker shots, ways that they can get Chris Paul shots, um, ways that they can attack this defense, which was extremely aggressive in game three. Um, So, you know, based on what we've seen all season long, it's time to trust that they'll find the right ways to adjust after watching the film. And capitalize on what they see so they can still take game four and if they take game four suddenly the outlook is totally different they were down two one in the Lakers series and it, and it was it felt like a, a reasonable time to panic they won three straight and then they ripped off another six wins after that in a row for a nine game win streak which is I think it was tied for like the 10th longest in NBA history playoff history one of those um one of those playoff runs it's just Hard to stop, and it's and it was fun to watch. Who's to say the Suns aren't going to do it again? <laughs> you know, the last time they lost to an L.A. team, that's what they did. So we'll see. They bounced back from losses all season long. I think they only had three losing streaks all season during the regular season um, and then one in the playoffs against the Lakers. So we'll see what happens. They need to take care of business in game four and really put the pressure on the Clippers to come back in the series. But, um, you know, it is what it is. They lost game three. We move on to game four. It's not the end of the world. We do need to talk about Patrick Beverly on Devin Booker though. um, Because it's pretty clear in game one, Booker was phenomenal. That was the last time we recorded a podcast. He had the 40 point triple double saying his praises. I'm sorry for jinxing him since then in the last two games, he has not been very good. He struggled. And and credit Tyrone Lou for making the adjustment to put Beverly on him. Beverly has been a pest as you know, you would expect with a guy like Beverly Um, in game two, Booker had 20 points on only five of 16 shooting made only one of his three, three point attempts. He had five assists to seven turnovers in game three, only 15 points, five of 21 shooting, one of seven from three, five assists to four turnovers. So over these last two games with Beverly being his primary defensive assignment, um, Booker's only averaging 17 and a half points, five assists, five and a half turnovers. He's shooting 27% from the floor and 20% from three. And you compare that to his first 11 games of the playoffs. He's at 29 points, 7.4 rebounds, 5.4 assists, shooting 49% from the floor, 38% from three, and only three and a half turnovers. So, pretty stark contrast there. Obviously, we're working with very small sample sizes. in in both cases, but um, it's been pretty clear that Beverly has done a really good job on Booker. He held him to, I think in this series so far, he's held Book to 12 points on four of 15 shooting when he's been guarding him when he's, you know, taking those shots. Uh, and He's forced four turnovers on him as well when he's been guarding him. So, you know, game three was kind of, uh, it was an eye opener a little bit because, you know, Book's prone to have shooting struggles. He's, he's prone to have off nights. Every superstar does, especially with a an all-defensive team player like Patrick Beverly guarding him. Um, but game three was just the third time in Booker's career where he's played at least 40 minutes and scored 15 or fewer points. And the other two times of his career came in his rookie season when he was playing a lot of minutes but was still a rookie. So, You know, there need to be adjustments here. Monty has to find a way to get Beverly off Book's back because Beverly has clearly frustrated Devin Booker. He's gotten into him, um, but it really did feel like, and this was something that Monty said after the game, it felt like Book rushed some of his shots and it felt like he just missed some shots that he would normally make. Like you saw, I think his first shot attempt of the game, he came off a curl for a mid range jumper, pretty open look, Beverly contested, but a makeable shot for Booker. It rimmed in and out. He had a couple of shots like that uh, from the baseline where he just missed them. Um, And then he had one or two where he got free of Beverly And then rushed the finish attacking the basket because he thought Beverly was behind him or on his tail. Um, So Beverly was clearly in his head, but I think part of it also has to do with that mask. And to his credit, Booker is never going to admit this, but to his credit, when we asked about the mask and if it was bothering him, Booker had said, like, no, I honestly don't even feel it. It's fine. It's not the mask. I just had a bad game, whatever. He wasn't making excuses. I'm going to make excuses for him because if you were watching that game, watching him defensively, watching him with the ball in his hand, he had like zero peripheral vision. Like there was the one play he had the rebound or the outlet pass and Beverly just snuck in behind him from the side and picked his pocket. Um, There were a couple of plays where he was – his head was on a swivel because I don't think he knew where the ball and his man were. Um, There was one that a pass went right by his head because he didn't even know his man was, was cutting to the basket and was right there next to him. So it was just little plays like that, that made it seem like, and then, and the rush shots, he had that one, um, where he like rushed a floater and Beverly was nowhere near him, but it seemed like he thought someone was hounding him. So he just kind of threw it up there. Um, it was just little things like that that made me think with the mask on his peripheral vision was not where it should be, uh, or where it normally is. So, Booker might not be making excuses for him. I'm going to say that the mask bothered him a little bit. And it's one of those things where he's playing with a broken nose right now and he didn't get put under. This was something he's noted in the postgame as well. He didn't get put under. Normally you would get put under and have to have that surgery done to fix his nose, but they didn't have time for that because he wouldn't have been able to have been cleared for game three if that had been the case. So he just got, I think, eight shots of anesthesia in um, to fix his nose. And that was basically what he was playing with, which is not ideal for a guy that, uh, I mean, the report was that he broke his nose in three different places. So that's not good. I I know that Beverly is a fantastic defender, um, but I'm not going to credit all of Patrick Beverly for Book's struggles in game two and game three, because remember, he broke his nose. I think that was second quarter or third quarter of game two. Um, But yeah, so the nose thing is clearly bothering him. The mask was not what we were hoping for. Mask book did not live up to the hype, but uh, we'll see what happens in game four. He was not making excuses for himself and he's playing with a broken nose. So at this point I would assume he's still playing with the mask, but if he struggles again early in game four, It wouldn't surprise me if a competitor like book just says, fuck it and takes the mask off and plays without it. I don't know if that's what's best for him, but it might be what we see if he struggles again. So something to keep an eye on. Um, But what we saw in game three was not Devin Booker, even with Patrick Beverly guarding him. Um, and, And this is one adjustment that the Suns should think about when it comes to Devin Booker and getting him better looks is, In the regular season, when Phoenix beat the Clippers, I think it was at home, um, and in the past, too, Booker has bullied Patrick Beverly in the post, on the block, um, because he has a very good post game. Now, against a defense like the Clippers that can send extra help to him and rotate, maybe that's not as viable in a playoff scenario, but it is something worth trying because Booker has the advantage there, and it's one of those things where – When he puts the ball on the floor, when he's holding it on the perimeter and looking to make his move, Beverly is already up in him. So it needs to be one of those things where Booker can get him in early foul trouble, um, get a couple of easy looks around the post where he has an advantage, a strength and size advantage over Beverly, um, and get the ball rolling a little bit quicker because Beverly is hounding him all over the court right now. They need to find a way to just kind of use that over aggression against him and, uh, and get Book going early on this time. Um, they also need to do a better job of, of freeing up some space for their guards because we saw it a lot in game three, but the Clippers are giving Chris Paul and Devin Booker zero space. They're sticking guys right in their chest, right in their shirts. Um, and it's one of those things where we've seen it so often throughout the playoffs. It drives me nuts. Where like Chris Paul will just kind of like back down his man, like there's pressure in the backcourt, so he'll just back down his man all the way to half court. He rarely turns the ball over in those scenarios and it's fine, but like, especially when his like shoulder was messed up, it was very clear when they had Dennis Schroeder hounding him up and down the court but by the time he gets across the half-court line, it's like the clock is ticking 18, 17, 16. They're not getting into their offense until there's 16 seconds left on the shot clock half the time, and that's not a recipe for success. So what the Suns need to do is, as much as you trust Chris Paul to handle the ball in that scenario, and he rarely turns it over when he's just you know, straight up backing down his man, when the Clippers guards are hounding Booker and Chris Paul like that, they need to nail them with a screen, like in the backcourt. And I know that Aiton is already down the court half the time when that happens. Um, but they just need to nail these guys with screens. And I'm not talking about the dangerous kind where guys are like turning and sprinting and they get they run into a brick wall. That that kind of stuff's dangerous. We're not trying to hurt anybody. But if you've ever played basketball and you've been hit by a sturdy good screen, um, you're not as keen to be hounding dribblers anymore and, and just running wherever they go. You, you've you got your head on a swivel a little bit, and that's what the Suns need to do for the Clippers. They need to nail Patrick Beverly with a screen or two um, so that he really feels them and that he backs off a little bit. They can't let the Clippers' defensive pressure bother their ball handlers like that because it gets the Suns out of their sets. It prevents them from running their stuff in a timely manner. You know, you don't want to be starting your offense – Thirty feet from the basket with like fifteen seconds left on the shot clock, and that's what the Suns are doing a lot of time. Um, and they've been playing at a slower pace in this series, um, and they played at a slower pace again with Chris Paul returning, obviously for Cameron Payne. So these are just a couple of things that the Suns need to do. It's <laughs> it sounds very rudimentary to you know analysis wise to be like just hit them with a good screen, but they kind of need to free up some space a little bit and, and make the Clippers defensive presences feel them in that way. Um, But going to the tempo thing, this is another thing that the Suns can adjust moving forward um, because their pace has been down in this series. So in game one, it was at 94.5. In game two, it was at 92. At game three, it was 94.5. And in their first 10 playoff games before the series began, it was at 96.6. So it's not a huge difference but dropping from 96.6 to 92 in game two and then 94 and a half in the other two games it's it's too slow it's a little too slow especially you know like the suns have gotten in this bad habit of trying too hard to hunt mismatches i feel like they did it a lot with luke Kennard in game three and i get it because it was super effective against the nuggets and it was also effective against the lakers to a certain degree but like this is a different team they're better they're more balanced and luke Kennard has been holding his own because i think in this series and especially in game three when they're hunting those mismatches too much they're taking bad shots just because the mismatch dictates that that player should shoot and we saw it a couple of times where they rushed offense where they tried to attack a player that they were targeting but they wound up taking a bad shot like just keep moving the ball. There needs to be more ball movement. There needs to be more player movement. They need to just run their offense instead of focusing so much on targeting those mismatches, um, and that'll help increase the pace as well as you know what I was talking about earlier. Just nail somebody with a pick in the backcourt so that you can get the ball up the court and get into your offense right away. You can't let a guy hound you. You know, for eight seconds in the backcourt and then start your offense. That's just not a good recipe for success. Um, and this relates to campaign's potential absence and, and why the Suns missed him so much in game three. So it's wild that we're here, honestly, that we're saying this, but campaign's absence in game three swung a conference finals game a little bit because the Suns really missed him honestly, um, just his ability to get downhill, to attack off the dribble. Um, he's hit a lot of tough layups in this series and has put pressure on the rim by not being afraid to take those shots. Um, and and his dribble penetration forces the Clippers defense to rotate. It opens up a lot for the Suns offensively because of that. Um, obviously, he's not the individual player that Chris Paul is, but the pressure that he puts on the rim off the dribble, the speed that he has is a very different and valuable skill set, especially for this series. Um, because we saw it in game three Chris Paul's slow, methodical, um, you know, individual probing it, it creates a slower pace and, and it just wasn't the right answer in game three. And he even said after the game, like, I need to push the tempo up. Obviously, the shooting struggles didn't help at all. But um, and he still had, I think, 12 assists or something like that. So he still can distribute the ball and he's still the point guard, but they need to play at a faster pace. And that's why the Suns are really hoping that campaign's ankle injury is not serious because they need that that increase in tempo that he brings to the floor. They need the pressure that he puts on the rim and on the Clippers defense to rotate when he puts the ball on the floor. Um, They need his speed. They need him attacking the basket, especially if Booker struggles again with the mask and with Patrick Beverly, that matchup. So really fingers crossed that campaign is back for game four because it's such a pity that he went down with this injury, you know, literally the game after the game of his life. He had a career high 29 points, nine assists and zero turnovers in game two. Uh, And it was the campaign game until, you know, the value at the very end there. Um, and the other thing is that it also saves money from the Etwan Moore experience. Uh, we're at the point where less is more. They really need to, and I brought this up on the last pod, but they really need to consider giving those minutes to Javon Carter. If pain is out again, um, obviously you hope that pain is back. So you don't even have to cross that bridge, but you know, Moore, more has not been terrible. He just hasn't been good. And there's a significant drop off from pain to more in those backup guard minutes. So it might be time to try Javon Carter, see if he can't knock down an open three or two, see if he can't disrupt the Clippers a little bit with his defense. They could use somebody who's just going to hound the hell out of Reggie Jackson because he's been killing the Suns in this series so far. Um, and then the last thing is just the basic three-point math that has not been working in the Suns' favor so far. And I harped on this in the first games too, the first two games of this series, but the math works in the Clippers' favor as far as their three-point attack unless the Suns are racking up points in the paint and you know scoring with kind of lights-out efficiency from two-point range like they did in the first two games. So in game one, the Clippers made seven more threes than Phoenix. They went 20 for 47, compared to 13 for 32 for the Suns. Um, So the Clippers shot almost 43%. The Suns shot a really solid 41% in that game, but the Clippers attempted 15 more threes. They made seven more threes, which means they were a plus 21 in points off of three-pointers. In game two, they were also plus 21 in points off of three-pointers because they went 13 for 34 compared to six of 26. The Suns only shot 23% from three in that game, Clippers shot 38%. And this shouldn't be surprising because the Clippers are going to outshoot most teams. They were the most efficient three-point shooting team during the regular season. Um, Oddly enough, in game three, the three-point discrepancy was a lot closer. The Clippers only made two more three-pointers in Phoenix. They shot 12 of 34 compared to 10 of 32 for the Suns. um, And they only attempted two more three-pointers than Phoenix did. So they were only a plus six in points off of threes in that game but they also shot, you know, 4% better from three and the Suns weren't able to capitalize from inside the arc the way that they were through the first two games. Um, So in total through the first three games, the Clippers have made 16 more threes than the Suns. So that's plus 48 in points off of threes. They've taken 25 more attempts and they're shooting almost 40% compared to 32% for the Suns. So The reason the Suns had been able to compensate for that is because of their mid-range efficiency, because of their dominance in points in the paint. Um, So in game one, they outscored LA 54 to 34 in points in the paint, and they shot a ridiculous 36 for 57 on two-pointers, on all two-pointers. So that's 63% on all two-point shots. Um, They also were up 16 to 4 in transition points in that game. In game two, they doubled L.A. in points in the paint. They had 60 compared to L.A.'s 30, um, and they went 35 for 56 on two-point shots, which was almost 63%. So they were elite on points in the paint. Any shot inside the arc, the Suns were fantastic in those first two games. In game three, the story totally changed. They only won the points in the paint battle 42-40, to Uh, and they went 25 for 58 on all two pointers so that's only 43%. So they were down they were you know bound to have a little bit of regression in that regard. Nobody's going to shoot like 63% on twos for an entire series against a good team like the Clippers in the conference finals, but the Suns need to get back to dominating that points in the paint battle um, to being lights out in the mid-range which you know is never going to happen if Devin Booker and Chris Paul are shooting 10 for 40. Um, and that's the way that they make up for that three-point shooting discrepancy, which, unfortunately, they kind of missed a golden opportunity in that regard because in game three, the three-point battle was a lot closer than it was in the first two games. Um, but we're that's going to do it for Sun's analysis today. I think we're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right, so in keeping with the theme of battling doom and gloom, we're going to turn to a show that is... More well known for doom and gloom than any I've seen in a while, honestly. Um, we're gonna be talking about The Handmaid's Tale, which just wrapped up season four on Hulu last week. And uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, there will be spoilers ahead, but the basic premise is that it's set in this dystopian society, um, this, this country called Gilead forms uh, on the east coast of the United States. And they're basically these religious nuts because in this in this uh, dystopian world, the birth rate is down across the world. And, you know, these religious nuts are basically, they're citing this passage um, from the Bible where God basically tells, um, I can't remember who it was, but he basically lets the dude have sex with his handmaid because his wife can't give him a child. So... That's basically their premise for uh, capturing, imprisoning these women called handmaids, and uh, you know, knocking them up. Basically, it's 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 state-sanctioned rape in this country called Gilead. Um, the handmaid's purpose is to, um, you know, bring a child into this world. That's what they're there for, and they're assigned to the households of these higher-up. Commanders within this army of Gilead, and uh, they're usually given to families that, uh, for whatever reason, cannot have kids, whether it's the husband's fault or the wife's fault. It's usually the wife's fault in this society because it's uber patriarchal, <laughs> obviously. Um, so that's basically the basic premise, and it's all centered around a character, June Osborne, who, you know, you get bits and pieces of her backstory as it goes along, but she was married. Uh, she had a, a, a daughter with her husband and then with the formation of this state, she got separated from them. She was imprisoned and forced to be a handmaid. She was separated from her daughter, separated from her husband who was able to escape because he's a man. Um, and, you know, she has fellow handmaids that she gets close to, her friend Moira from before, um, her friend Janine that she befriends through this whole horrible process of being a handmaiden. Um, you know, Nick, who becomes her love interest, He's a he becomes a commander in this army, but he's kind of undercover and he's in love with June and they actually have a child together because the commander that June is assigned to can't have a kid. Um, that's Fred Waterford and his wife, Serena Joy, who are just absolute nut jobs. And, uh, you know, there's this Aunt Lydia who's basically the mother goose, only if mother goose, like, beat her kids when they acted out of line. Like, she's the one that whips them into shape, all these handmaids into shape. Um, So there's a lot of interesting characters, but it is a brutal season four, and it's a brutal show in general, obviously, um, which is interesting because it's based on a book And the original source material ends where season one ends. So it kind of ends on a cliffhanger as far as whether Nick, this guy that she trusts and had a love affair with is actually leading her to freedom or basically sending her to die because he works for this, the uh, basically undercover. They're called eyes, the eyes of Gilead. So Um, That's where the book ends, but that's not where the show ends because it's gone on for three more seasons. And they've done a decent job in general of of keeping it within this world that was created and, and, you know, fleshing out a story that would make sense based on the first season. Um, But it also is kind of dragging on and I'm not really sure where they're going to go from here. So in season four, they start on the run after rescuing all these kids from Gilead, this huge operation, undercover operation that they did to get these kids out of Gilead and back to their original families back in Canada. Um, But Nick, who is still working for Gilead, basically finds these handmaidens who have escaped um, and they're sent back, but then they escape again from Aunt Lydia. And it's unfortunate because two of June's friends get like hit by a moving train as they're trying to run away. (laughs) Uh, Super messed up moment in the show, but that's just the kind of show it is. It's super dark like that. Um, So then it's June and her friend Janine on the run, who we love Janine. If anything happens to Janine, we're rioting, but um, they get bombed when they're in Chicago. I think it was, they're on the run and they get bombed by Gilead. Janine is recaptured. June reunites with her friend Moira, who has been rescued by Canada, and she eventually reunites with her husband Luke. Um, But most of season four, it's about her struggling to readjust to a quote-unquote normal life, um, because she has all this guilt over her daughter Hannah, who is still in Gilead, who doesn't recognize her the last time that she sees her um, all her trauma from all the horrible shit that she's gone through over the last few years. Um, and she kind of becomes a little bit of a monster because of it. And it's, you know, justifiable because she went through some horrible, awful stuff. Um, but she does become something of, of, uh, I don't want to say reprehensible, but her actions are harder to defend as the season progresses along. Um, She offers her testimony against the Waterfords who are imprisoned in Canada, um, but they're about to get off because Waterford is basically agreeing to tell the government everything that he knows about Gilead, about their power structure, about the way that they operate, all that stuff. Um, So it's a real moment of frustration and injustice because they basically raped her once a month. Um, to impregnate her and it's uh it's it's a very dark show because of some of these really heavy concepts that are being that are you know that are center place in the show itself um but the very end of season four she does get her moment of revenge and it's kind of a moment of vindication but also um now i mean it's vindicating like so june pulls some strings with nick and uh commander joseph lawrence who kind of helped her run that operation to rescue those kids from gilead Um, and they get commander waterford who was going to be let off they basically get him into the woods um, where june and a bunch of other handmaidens basically kick the shit out of him to death like (laughs) like they just wreck him and uh, it shows him dead at the very end of the season um and it's kind of uh it's one of those things where you've been waiting for this moment. You'd been waiting for June to get her revenge, but a lot of the stuff leading up to it does make you question the path that she's going down um, because as justifiable as it is to want revenge and as, as, uh, as awesome as it was to see her get it, it's going to be interesting to see where she goes from here because her daughter is still in Gilead and she's clearly on the war path right now um so very dark show very fucked up premise very well acted um but you know june's actions are getting harder to defend she can be very selfish um in the way that she is turning some of these other former handmaids to her side to being angry and it's hard to tell whether it's coming from a place of actually wanting to help them or being blinded by her own hatred Um, which again is very justifiable based on what she's been through um I honestly I don't know if I'd recommend watching the show right now if you haven't seen it just because this dystopian society feels way closer to what it like it doesn't feel as dystopian as it should especially after the last administration like I started watching it around the election time and I got all caught up for season four and it bothered me that it didn't seem as crazy and as far off and as distant a concept as it probably should have um because there's some really messed up stuff but it is basically just a bunch of religious nut jobs that are um setting up this super patriarchal society where women are secondary and and used as you know sexual things and it's uh it felt it hit a little too close to home as far as like reproductive rights in this country and all kinds of other conversations that we could have so it's definitely timely but if you are depressed about the current state of the world and of this country in general maybe give it a while before you watch this show because it's it is very dark it especially like seasons one and two it gets really heavy um and season four does a little bit better job of not being so heavy all the time um but there are still it's i mean it's still a very dark show so i'm not sure where they go from here they have a lot to wrap up they've done a pretty decent job of bouncing off the source material but i don't know how they kind of wrap up the june nick luke love triangle how they get hannah back you know what happens to janine who is now back in gilead with aunt lydia that whole dynamic um, you know, how Serena Joy reacts to the father of her child because she's pregnant by the end of season four, how she reacts to Commander Waterford being dead now. She's probably gonna want blood, especially because she'll know she'll know that June was involved. So setting up a lot of interesting conflicts, um, not really sure how much longer this show will go on for, but season four was good. The whole show is good in general. For my final G rating, I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten. Um, and season four, I'm gonna give a 7.5 out of 10. I thought it was very good, ended on a very strong note. Um, but there was a lot of kind of filler stuff in there, and it's it needs a little bit more direction, I think, because it once you get June out of Gilead, it it's uh I feel like the most fascinating part of it is that dystopian society and the interactions within it. So it'll be interesting to see how they kind of bring that all together and wrap things up. Uh, I don't know if season five will be the last, but it has been renewed for another season. But anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe, tell your friends, write me a five-star review if you are enjoying the show. Until next time, this is Joe Borgay signing off.